morning. I want to talk a little bit about how I got ready for church this morning. I like to get up early. I took a shower and I put my clothes on. And uh, that's a good thing. I've <clears throat> been thinking a lot about clothes lately. I'm not a fashion guy, but... Uh, it would have been embarrassing to be here without clothes. So I put clothes on. And also, it's rainy and cold outside, so that's two re- good reasons why I put clothes on. I also put socks on. These are clean ones. And I put socks on, I, uh, not so much because I was scared you're going to see my ankles, but because my shoes don't feel good unless I have my socks on. So I wear socks because of my shoes. I wear my shoes because it's rainy outside. And I wear those because it would be embarrassing to be up here barefoot, because I wouldn't wear socks if I didn't have shoes. I would be barefoot. I wear uh, my ring on Sundays. It's my man jewelry. And, uh, and I wear this watch, although the battery's dead, so it's only right at 312. <laughs> but no fear, they've given me a really big clock right here, so you're safe. <clears throat> you know, but I was thinking, uh, a lot of the things we wear... Why do we wear them? I, I wore, I did wear this morning, I wore a scarf, my uh, Moldova scarf. Uh-huh. And I wore that because it makes me look good. <laughs> I look good in that thing. But I did wear a coat on top, and I wear the coat because it was rainy and cold outside. That's everything I wore today. Uh, and it's strange. I'm going somewhere, by the way. Uh, I promise. It is strange, the things we wear, the way we cover ourselves up. Um, I think that has a lot to do with, with the message this morning. So if you would, we'll just, we'll just direct our attention straight to Scripture. If you'll open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. This morning we're going we're gonna to wrestle with the idea of <clears throat> how we dress ourselves. And we're finishing a sermon. Today is the conclusion of a seven-week sermon series on human sexuality entitled Blended Images. So if you're showing up now, you're showing up really late, and I'm just going to apologize to you because I'm going to speak with a tone that imagines you've been here for six weeks. So we've worked very hard to derive some ideas. And uh, if, if you're Johnny come lately, you just need to go hear them or do something or just forgive me. Um, if, it, if it sounds like I'm moving too fast. Okay, let's look at Genesis. <clears throat> We're going to read one verse uh, to start with. It's Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. We finally are now approaching the end of Genesis 2. And this is what it says. <clears throat> the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. The man and the wife were both naked and they felt no shame. I think this is a big verse. I don't mean, it's not just an observation. I think the Lord is saying in chapter 2, verse 25, he's summarizing the whole ordeal of man and woman. And the whole ordeal of mankind. This is almost the capstone phrase to the sixth day is that the man and the woman were both naked and they felt no shame. 
And I, 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 I think that in it there is this idea of perfect harmony. That you and I, we never feel this way. A few of us have ever been just naked. Without feeling. And I, by the way, I don't know if I say that word right or not anymore. <laughs> but I've been, I've been uh, persecuted for my pronunciation of it. But a few of us are ever that way without feeling shame. But there's this moment in Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, where there's this idea of perfect harmony, that the man and the woman, they have nothing to hide from each other. There's no distance between them. There's no agenda. There's no judgmental eye. There's, there's nothing that one of them's thinking that they're not only willing to share, but that they don't desire to share with the other person. I think the man and the woman were made to be seen and enjoyed by one another. In other words, I think she was made so that he would enjoy seeing her, and he was made so that she would enjoy seeing him. Have you ever noticed the person you see least is yourself? It's this idea that God's made us to be seen by others. The wholeness and intimacy we spoke of last Sunday that occurs during godly sexual union is expressed here by the fact that they're both naked and they feel no shame. There's, there's such a wholeness and a harmony about them. And this harmony is not ex, uh, exclusive to their relationship. Uh, I think that's mostly what's being expressed, but there's a, something else that's present, which is particularly uh, observable on a day like today, and that is that the man and the woman didn't need to wear clothes because the weather was nice. Just think of Eden. It was balmy. It was Caribbean. If it wasn't Caribbean, then the man and the woman were well-suited for whatever it was. But the idea isn't that they were naked and they felt no shame, but then they bundled up because of the weather. It was a sunny day. It was, the breeze was cool. The grass felt good between their feet. The ground was soft. I imagine there were mornings where Eve woke up, she rolled over to her husband, and she said, God's mercies are new. Every morning. And I bet you there were evenings where Adam looked at the sky and he whispered to his wife, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. The whole thing was working for harmony. The whole thing, there was no shame anywhere. In fact, it was a divine climate that God had ordained so that nothing would ever be brought into dissatisfaction with the man and the woman. Imagine that, that the garden, the, the garden was always orchestrated to bring joy to the man and the woman. If it rained, it'd be the kind of rain where your kids want to run out and play in the puddles. It would be that kind of day where the bright sun would come out and they would lay out and dry off. And so I think there's a, this deeper idea of harmony, that it's not just harmony between the man and the woman. It's harmony between humanity and nature it's harmony between creation, mankind, and God. There's no shame. There's no shame anywhere. There's complete openness. This is what I think it means in 25 when it says they have no shame. That there's just perfect harmony. Read with me chapter 3. I'm going to read 7 to 11. <clears throat> So they've just sinned. 
And immediately after they sin, the Lord writes this. Now listen to this. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together, and they made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Now, if chapter 2, verse 25, summarizes just the the harmony of all of creation, chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, does an equal job expressing how all of this has come to an end. In a moment, they are both naked together and they feel no shame. Everything is right. Immediately following the sin, the way that the Lord chooses to express the fallenness of man is through sexual shame. Do you see that? that is, the, the topic of conversation is their nakedness. The first way that sin manifests itself in the human experience is shame over the way my body looks or shame over the way my body presents itself before someone else. The fact that sin manifests itself first and shame shows up amidst the sexual identity of a man and a woman. Now, I, I don't want us to miss the depth of this. I don't want you to think that their eyes were opened and it was simply a surface-level kind of identity. Like, well, Think of it this way. Adam and Eve are physical specimens. They're physical specimens. There probably is nobody handsomer than Adam, and there's no lady as beautiful as Eve. I, I mean, there's... Nothing to be ashamed of. They're very good. They're the best. We're all some poor derivatives of them. I think that's reasonable to imagine. So when their eyes are opened, it isn't as though the shame is surfacing because he's got a spare tire. You see, it it sounds silly, but it's important. It it isn't that he looks at her and goes, hips, a little bigger. That's not happening. They're physical specimens. They're physical specimens, and there's nothing to compare one another to. There's no one else around. And so even if they are kind of garden couch potatoes, they don't know it. There's no way that Adam looks at her after the fall and goes, you know, I would like your hair blonde. He's never seen it. So this kind of shame is not showing up because of a surface failure. It isn't showing up because we don't feel shameful because we're a little fatter than we ought to be or we walk a little more gainly or or we have a mole in the wrong place. That is not why there's shame here. These are two physical specimens with no comparison but one another and they immediately feel a deep soul shame about who they are before one another. I don't want us to limit this idea of sexual shame to the idea of sex. I hope if you've learned anything over these seven weeks is that human sexuality, your manhood or your womanhood, is much, much bigger than sex. 
That's a small part. It's a significant part. It's a, in some ways a very shaping part of us. But our manhood is much bigger and our womanhood is much bigger than that idea. And I think the shame that they feel is much more comprehensive than simply this idea of sex. And we can see this all over the place. Men and women, a man in a men's locker room still feels shame. A woman in a woman's locker room still feels shame. There are stalls in our bathrooms. Why? Because we feel shame. And it, isn't even, it does not even limit it simply to, to the physical realm. A man, when a man's body gets old or if it gets injured, where he cannot do the work that he feels like he was designed to do, he experiences shame. It's frustrating. Why can't I do this? I feel like God made me to do this. When a woman finds out that she cannot have children, there's shame. And these kinds of shame are not like, go read your daily bread and you'll feel better shame. This is deep. This is the deep kind of shame that takes years and months of reconciling with the Lord as to why am I not the way I'm supposed to be. It's this, this knowledge within us that we should be something that we're not. And we're failing and we're lacking somewhere. This disharmony, this distance, this difference, our frustration with things being frustrated, this is all the case. And it's true also with the weather. right? So the harmony that's present when they are both naked and they feel no shame, the fact that they enjoy one another, the fact that they enjoy presence with God, the fact that all of creation is, is uh, compelled to bring man and woman into deeper joy with one another. At the fall, when they're placed outside of the garden, they're placed outside of that protective bubble, outside of balmy days into this kind of weather. This is shame. The fact that we have to cover ourselves up, this is our land. I mean, Adam would defy this if it even thought to happen. A cold, rainy day on his watch? Even creation doesn't cooperate. I think there is this feeling, and if, even if you know Christ, if you can step away from knowing Christ for a second, there is a distinct feeling in our shame, like either we have left God or that God has left us or both. That's what shame does in our, inside of us. Now, before we develop this idea of shame a little more, I want us to pause for a second and remind ourselves how often we've seen that our earthly physical realities have spiritual significance. We've been saying this week after week after week after week. We've been saying there is meaning, real meaning, spiritual meaning behind your sexuality. That God didn't make you a man, or God didn't give you a spouse, or God didn't do this to you simply because he's thinking about you. Your life is expressing and preaching an idea, a sexual idea, that has great eternal significance. So what does it mean when God says, I've made you in my likeness and in my image? That alone should cause us to worship. That alone should cause us to ask, what does he desire of me? What, 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 how do I imitate that for which I was made after? 
When God designs the man and the wife to have co-equal but complementary roles, what does that suggest about the triune relationship of God? The fact that members of same essence do different things. When God gives us marriage and he says that one is Christ and one is the church, that has massive spiritual implication. So what are we supposed to think of shame? The fact that at the moment of the fall, there is this physical, earthly sensation. Should we not expect that it has a spiritual significance? I think we should. I think this discomfort of shame is a constant reminder to us that life is not what it's supposed to be, that something is wrong. Shame is a sort of cosmic, universal, negative religion. It's, it, it proves that there's something out there. The fact that you and I have this internal feeling like something ought to be different, to me, is proof enough that there's God. It's proof of the divine. It's proof of the eternal. The fact that we are, we are so dissatisfied with what is. There's a big religion called Otness. And I think every human being is a member of it. And I don't think shame leads us to Christ, but I do think this. I think shame makes us unsteady enough and uncomfortable enough that we just might see him and we just might move towards him. Okay, I want to talk about two things that happen when people experience shame. There's two things they do. The first is they dwell in it. Some people, when they feel the shame on them, they choose to dwell in their shame. They, they, they foster a life in this valley of shame, in this dark pit. They just say, I'm going to be there. And I'm not saying that they voluntarily do it because they want to. Of course, they don't want to. I certainly think there's sin issues. I think it's very complex and difficult. It's unique for each person. But some people choose to live in a suffocating life of depression and hopelessness. I can't give you a good reason but it happens. They're there. They're in their shame. They choose not to leave it. They choose not to reach out. They choose not to see things, either that or they have not been told of a place where there is hope. Some people are hopeless, but they do not know that there is a hope giver, which is why we're here. But there are those people who choose to live there. They either are entangled in some hopeless idea or they haven't heard there is a way out. And Satan would just as soon keep you there. If you're there, Satan would just as soon keep you there. The Bible calls him the accuser. And he makes a craft of taking shame which comes from sin and magnifying it and amplifying it to something it ought not to be. So our shame, natural shame, makes us feel like something is wrong with me. The accuser's shame makes us feel like everything is wrong with me. The accuser always enters in and he always is trying to slow you down to keep you in this valley of shame because the longer you're there, the more hopeless it is. And because it's there that you die. There is no life in that valley. That's the one of two, place, one of two things people could do is they can choose to stay in this valley. The second thing they can choose to do is to leave this valley and climb up, right? Every valley is defined by the mountains on either side of it. 
And so people in shame, they can choose, or they can be so dissatisfied with the shameful living that they desire to climb out of this valley. And so on the, let's just say on the west there is this mountain, it's the mountain of God, and the shame stirs them and moves them. And I think most people are not satisfied to live in a life of shame, and so they leave. And some people climb up this mountain on the west, and as they climb up, they, they see at the top is a cross, which is Jesus Christ and, and the teachings of the Lord, and they, and they climb out of their shame, and they respond to Christ in faith, and Christ rescues them from their shame. That's one of two places we go. That's one of two places we take our shame. We climb out and we pursue the Lord. And the Lord doesn't make light of our shame. He doesn't say, oh, you ought not to feel shame for that. He says, you ought to feel shame. Because you have wrecked what I created. But I've sent my son. Who has suffered your shame. So that you can be clothed in righteousness and be with me. That's, that's the message of the West Mountain. That many of us are climbing, right? And we're in different, varying degrees. And the longer you climb it and the higher you get towards the Lord, the more you approach Him, the less shame you feel. Have you ever noticed the more godly and the greater longevity you have in your marriage, the less shame you feel with your spouse? There's things that you can say to your spouse after a certain number of years that you wouldn't think, wouldn't even come to your mind to express. Sometimes you can look at each other, right? And you've expressed more openness and honesty in a look than you could when you were dating. That's because you're climbing out of shame. But there's another mountain, and it's on the east side. So you can either stay in this valley of shame, this valley of the serpent, or you can climb out. And some people climb out on the west side of the mountain, and some people will climb out on the east side. And the east mountain, I would call the mountain of man. And the problem is still shame, but the way they deal with it is they say the farther and farther we get from God, the less shame we feel. So the way they deal with shame is not by giving it to somebody, or not by trying to wrestle with it, but by abolishing shame altogether. That's the the mountain of man. The mountain of man says, the only thing you ought not talk about is the word ought. And the mountain of man says, the only thing you can't do is tell me what I can't do. And the mountain of man says, the only thing that's wrong is talking about things that are wrong. Because they're trying to elevate themselves or get away from shame by abolishing the idea of God. By abolishing the idea of oughtness. By simply saying, do what you like. I think that mountain is worse than immoral, it's amoral. And there's the two ways that we exit shame. Everybody in this room is either climbing the mountain of God or they're in the valley of shame or they're somewhere on the mountain of man trying to convince themselves that they ought not to feel shame for the things they've done. You ought to. Paul sums it up in Romans 2 when he says, they got so good at doing wrong that they not only did wrong, they celebrated it. That's this idea. This idea they've gone beyond doing wrong to not even acknowledging it's wrong. Well, I don't know where you are. I don't know whether you're on the West Mountain or the East Mountain or in the Valley, but I do know this. I do know that God's church sits on His mountain. I'm not even saying this church. I'm saying God's real church, His invisible church, 
that he cares about is firmly built and soundly built upon the rock of his mountain. You know, we're trying to conform to the image of his church, which means this, that when we as a church encounter the world, and when we're trying to get people to come sit and hear, or when we want people to hear the message of God, and in order to do that, in order to get them to attend, and I'm not even talking as a church specifically, but in your life, with your friend or with your brother and sister or with your a relative or whatever it is, when, when you, in the name of the church, trying to get them to, to get closer, when you restore fellowship by taking something that is shameful and not calling it shameful, when you, in order to have uh, some kind of fellowship, take something that's really ugly, that God calls ugly and you call it beautiful, or take something that is bad and you call it good, or when you take something that the Lord says is shameful and you, and you are either silent on it or you approve of it, you are driving them up the wrong mountain. You think you're bringing them to church, you're bringing them to this building, but you're not bringing them to the Lord. You're forcing them up the wrong mountain because you're telling them they ought not to feel shame over things that are shameful. They are full of shame. And God uses shame. Remember, these earthly physical expressions of our sexuality, our manhood, our womanhood, marriage, our relationships, and shame, they have spiritual significance that God is using. God has allowed shame into our lives so that we might move towards Him. And when we abolish shame for the sake of fellowship, we push people down the wrong mountain. Parents, if you, because of the shame of your decisions in the past, are not talking to your children about sexual issues, if you say to yourself, how can I, how can I talk about this because of all the mistakes I've made? And so you're silent. I'm here to say you are pushing them up the wrong mountain. Shame. Shame on you. We don't, I don't preach to you things that I've mastered. I preach to you what the Lord says. You ought to do the same thing to your children. We don't teach our children based on our performance. A, parents don't have A, kids because they're the ones who are allowed to talk about it. Parents teach what God says to their children. And when you arrive at a place where you've made mistakes... You react in precisely the same way you are before Christ, which is humbly and confessionally. You don't celebrate it. You don't joke about it. But you're honest and you say, I made mistakes here and I found shame. But let me tell you a better way. I wonder, parents, when you cannot talk to your children in a redemptive way, I wonder if you fully embrace the redemption of Christ. But silence drives them up the wrong mountain. And they're listening. And they hear your silence. One of the biggest voices that comes from the mountain of man recently with regards to sexuality is, I was born that way. 
somehow there's not supposed to be shame in the way we were born. I'm here to say it's, it's odd that I actually agree with the mountain of man. I agree that I was born shameful. How does that interfere with the truth of God? The fact that we're born sinful all of a sudden means that we ought not to feel shame about it. The psalmist feels shame. He says, for I was sinful in the womb. And he feels the shame. All of us feel the shame of Adam. And the fact that we're born this way does not mean that we, we can abolish the idea. The fact that we're born this way is God, is God is telling us in Scripture, you are all born shameful and sinful. You are all born broken. You are all born sexually broken. There is no one here who is not sexually broken. There is no person here who does not have their manhood or womanhood dysfunctional in some way. Even now, that does not grieve the Lord. Because we're born that way. That's reason not to change. It's reason not to pursue God. That's reason not to confess and repent and approach His throne. The only people who are Christians are ones who acknowledge they're born that way and pursue Christ. Now I think the way we cover ourselves up in so many different sexual ways, the ways men and women talk about their manhood and womanhood to hide who they really are, the ways that husbands and wives shield the way they speak to one another, the ways that we do things in dark that we don't want to tell other people about, all of these different ways that we bear shame reflects this idea that we're scared to bring it to Jesus. I think some people who feel shame, they avoid the mountain of God because they're scared of what God will do to them when they get there. They think to themselves, if I bring all of this shame before the Lord, he will scorn me. I want to read this passage to you. This is from Hebrews. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you hear what Christ is saying? When we approach Christ, he does not scorn you. He scorns your shame. That when you finally get to a place where you can watch to the cross confessionally, that the Lord takes your shame and he scorns that, but he preserves you. He clothes you in righteousness. The writer of Romans, Paul, says this. He says, clothe yourselves with Christ. It's written in Colossians that we're supposed to take off these, the garments of sin that are around us and to clothe ourselves with the godly virtues which come from Jesus Christ. That's what's offered at the cross. That's what's offered by Christ. He doesn't... Act like your shame isn't real. He takes your shame, he places it on the cross, and it's scorn. It is the subject of scorn, and you are the recipient of righteousness. Why are we so ashamed to come before Jesus? 
It's my hope and my prayer that you might all climb the mountain of the Lord. Amen. Please pray with me.